0: Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan
1: Pereira, for this month's show.
0: Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for September 2013. I've got two content-rich segments for you this month, packed with value. So let's get right into it. First is my expert interview, and this month is with David Penglase, who's a long-term client and friend of mine. We talk about his new book and idea, Intentionomics, which is all about how to live a happy, flourishing, and prosperous life, both a professional and personal life. Let's join that conversation with David now. Hello, this is Gihan Ferreira. I'm speaking today with David Penglays, who's a long-term client, colleague, and I'd like to think a friend of mine as well. And for a long time now, David's worked with lots of companies, local and international, helping them with some of the big areas like sales and customer experiences, uh, with leadership and business strategy, in really in a changing world. And I've known David for 15 years in total awe of his ability to see what's coming uh, long before it arrives. And also David has this amazing ability to invest in being at the leading edge and also always provide extraordinary value in everything that he does Um, and his new topic intentionomics is no exception. I think it's such a great topic because it's so contemporary uh, with so much attention now being given to things like happiness and purpose and meaning and corporate social responsibility and you know I find a lot of people who claim expertise in this space but I love that David comes at it with in-depth knowledge and a solid research-based foundation to that. Uh, So welcome David.
1: Gihan, it's my pleasure to uh, to be talking with you. And let me clear something up, you know, when you um, hopefully consider you a friend, of course we are. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Um, so look, I introduced this, uh, your big word, David, and uh, intentionomics. So what is it? Where did the idea come from?
1: Okay, so l- let me start with um, with what intentionomics is, and then then I'll talk a little bit about where the idea came from. Uh, intentionomics, just, just as it sounds like, has to do with the economics of our intentions. Now, what I mean by the economics of our intentions is that our intentions impact almost everything, if not every aspect of our lives. And I'm not just talking about um, economics in terms of money. It's just the impact on us on a micro and a macro level. The, 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 the platform principle of intentionomics is this. People get your truth. Uh, that over time, your intentions, your promises and actions, and your results will either promote you or expose you. So, so that's what intentionomics is about, the impact of our intentions on how we live a more happy, flourishing and prosperous life. But again, to answer your question on where did the idea come from? <laughs> my, my quick answer to that, believe it or not, uh, is, and I don't want it to sound trite, because I find it really difficult to explain it in any other way than this, and, and that is that my entire life's experiences have guided me to this point where I am absolutely convinced. And there's so much, um, philosophical and scientific research and evidence, which you've talked about, um, in the introduction as well to support this, that, that without a clarity of intention in our lives. And, and what I mean by that, a, a clarity around why we do what we do and how it impacts on our own life and the lives of, of everyone else that we come into contact with in our, um, in our various work life uh, roles. Without that clarity of intention, it's difficult for us to make intentional promises and, and to take intentional action and to achieve the intentional results that allow us to live a more happy, flourishing and prosperous life. So I'm pretty prescriptive about that, Gehan. Um <laughs> If we're not clear on our intentions, we, we, there, we, we may not be clear on the promises we make to ourselves and to others. And that's really the platform of what intentionomics is all about the more clear i am on my intention the more clarity i have around my promises my uh, actions my results and an overall trust that i create in the world
0: workplaces are changing and there are many people especially the younger generations who are looking for work that offers more than just money so they're looking for meaning and they want to be part of an organization with a greater purpose than than just you know the, the traditional or the the stereotyping of maximizing shareholder value And you also mentioned that uh, the organizations themselves, the employers, of course, want the results as well. So they want the engaged engaged workforce, but only if they're going to give the results. And the employees want work that gives meaning, not just money and not not just focused on helping the organization build a better company. So, So I'm really intrigued about this because you've already mentioned a couple of things where intentionomics can fit in. How do you see that intentionomics is going to make a difference to the way that that workplaces work in the future?
1: Well, the first area that needs to be worked on is um, is our whole concept of leadership, mm-hmm. um, what I call intentional leadership. Uh, look, I I, I was um, in human resources uh, back in the nineteen eighties, Gihan, and and way back then uh, there was a a definitive study done here in Australia on. Uh, what, what's lacking what's good and, but also what's lacking in, in Australian companies uh, and our potential for um, you know long term prosperity as a nation uh, and it was a report called the Carpent Report and I remember it because studying it uh, as part of my MBA uh, one of one of the things that it said was we have a real issue with leadership uh, here we are I don't know what is it um, 30 years hmm. since then and in Sadly, in my experience in working across a range of industries, and there are always exceptions to the rule, of course, but I still see leadership as our biggest issue uh, that's halting the, um, the, the, the genuine engagement um, and results-based engagement of employees um, in Australia today. And my, my guess is, it's only a guess because I don't know, uh, that's probably beyond just Australian borders as well. So where intention, where intentionomics uh, can really make a, an impact is getting leaders to understand and take accountability for the impact that their intentions have, not only on themselves, certainly not only on shareholders, but on all of the stakeholders, which will include the employees as well. Uh, and if we, we look at the work by um, Martin Seligman in Applied Positive Psychology, his his research shows that there are um, five key areas that if we have these in our personal and our work life, that we're more likely to flourish. And the final one that Seligman talks about um, is, is a sense of achievement. And I reckon this is the piece that is still missing in great leadership. Uh, that we don't define achievement in other, in terms other than uh, achieving a set goal or a task at work. Uh, and achievement is such m- a much more broader concept, um, far more broad than we can actually talk about on the interview today, Giham, but um, it's not just about goal achievement. Um, it's about the moments of truth along the way where we get a sense of pride around what we're doing, why we're doing and how we're doing. So I believe that's where that's where intentionomics can have a a real impact. Um, And the way that I do this with leaders uh, and with organisations is to introduce them to this intentional trust model, which basically allows them to hold themselves accountable for the impact that they have not only on themselves, but on others.
0: Okay, great. I definitely want to talk about that uh, intentional trust model because I think that's that's key and that's foundational. Um, Can you give me a glimpse into the... The achievement piece, David, because I think if you're saying so, the missing piece to leadership, I'd love to know just a little bit about it. I know you said we haven't got a lot of time to talk about it, but what can you tell me about that?
1: Okay, so so what we know around um, the the way that people typically look at achievement, especially at work. So I'm just going to focus on on work, um, and, and then I'll give you a, a, an analogy, if you like, or a metaphor. Um, for it that, that, that will anchor it A- at work typically we get set goals uh, and usually they're not goals that we get to set unless we're people like you and i who run our own businesses very few people in business who are employees um have, have a lot of control over the kind of end result goal that they are supposed to achieve. Budgets are set for tar- um, salespeople, uh, customer service people. You know, we, we set these targets for production. So that there's targets that we have to set. And the achievement of our role is usually around these KPIs or KRIs. And that's the kind of language that it's all about. What we know around what, what generally motivates people over the long run is the more intrinsically we are inspired or motivated to do something, the better we do at it, the more we learn about how to get even better at it and and, and the more we achieve. And so when we start to look at achievement, rather than just look at the end result, what we need to look at, what gives me a sense of achievement rather than what you are going to rate me on in my workplace. What points along the way do I get most satisfaction out of? Now, for some people, it may just be achieving the goal and and happy days, but that's rarely the case. Uh, what the research shows is that it's it's and I know this sounds trite, but um, it's still so true. It's it's the journey along the way and these moments of truth where we go, wow, I did that. But here's the problem, Gihan, around achievement is most of the time. As soon as we achieve a goal, that's ticked. We move on to what the next one is, and there's no real intentional discussion around what we've achieved along the way, who we've impacted, and how we've impacted on them. And so that's what I mean—a much broader sense of achievement. It's kind of like the the athlete. Um, if 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 it was all just about um, winning the you know the hundred meters or or the marathon, if it was all just about finishing even, then you wouldn't even train. A lot of sense of achievement comes from these moments along the way where we train, and on this day, everything just fell into place. On this day, we felt better, we recovered quicker or or, or whatever it is. It's not always just about the end goal.
0: Yeah, and that is that is really true. That feels so true for me, David. I know that whenever I've worked towards a goal, especially a stretch goal, I've got so much more value out of the process than achieving the goal. And I'm happy to have achieved the goal, but it's real. I look back on that and just look at how much a better person I've become because of the journey towards that goal.
1: And and here's here's the paradox of this, Gihan. Um, people like you and I. Uh, who are immersed in trying to understand what causes people to do what they do and how can we uh, positively impact on that. Uh, And and most professional speakers, coaches, um, adult educators are are looking at doing the same kind of thing. What what I find quite sad is that there's so much research around that um, validates what I'm saying here. And yet when I look inside of organisations, because it is so... um, it's so easy to keep focused on short term thinking around human resources and the application of that human resource to achieve a goal that we're missing so much of the intrinsic conversations that we could be having that sound like it's soft, but the reason why people don't do it is not because it's soft, it's because it's hard and harder than just focusing on an end goal.
0: So do you, th- do you think that's really the reason that they don't do it, because it is a harder, or they just think that it is something that's not really going to make much of an impact?
1: That's the paradox. It's 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 that they think, this is soft, and therefore, I'll just focus on using my human resources as I do my car, as I do my computer. It's just another resource to achieve the goal, and that is to increase shareholder value. Uh, and... and and so because that's an easier thing and a more pragmatic thing to put your, you know, you, ra- you know, wrap your mind around. Um, unfortunately, and although there's been a lot of talk about, you know, th- these shifts towards leaders who think a little bit differently, um, I still don't see a lot of change happening within the workplace because it still sounds too soft. Um, and well, I think this is where, uh, feels like Um, applied positive psychology is bringing some robustness around the science um, and and around neuroscience, around what's really happening with people in work. The problem that I see, though, where that's a strength, is the negative is it starts to get all so scientific uh, that some of the stuff that we're researching, you think, do we really need a research study to prove that if people feel good about who they are, they're going to work better?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I know you think the, you think that they've spent money on that and yeah. yet and yet uh, as you're saying they're not actually doing that that like people aren't actually applying it in the workplace
1: yeah it's a, it's another one of those things that and again this is where um and I I've, I've chosen my language around this uh, in, in my book intentionomics very clearly and, and and that is that that we we need to be applying inescapable truths in other words, we, we need to hold people accountable for, unless you can argue against this, if all the science says that this will make an impact, then why wouldn't you do it? And, and again, the reason why is it's a lot harder to sometimes a- admit that just focusing on an end goal And getting things done, although it might sound like it's going to get it done quicker, the likelihood is that it won't. Stephen Covey, not the late Stephen Covey, but his son, who Mm -hmm. wrote um, that, that book on trust, the speed of trust, his research is fascinating. And yet again, people think trust is a concept that, of course, we see, and here's the problem again, most of us get that intention, in my language, is important. Most of us get that trust is important. But when you hold this up to the light of day and you ask people, explain to me what trust really means in your organization and show me where you're measuring it. Um, My my experience is very few people can articulate what trust truly means. They know what it is, but they don't really know how to articulate what it means.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Because we often know when trust is broken – we don't know what creates it and sustains it.
1: I think we know when trust is broken and there is a direct impact on us, but quite often, and especially in business, but sometimes even in personal relationships, trust can be fractured and maybe it's only a stress fracture, but we won't even know it. We won't even realize it. And the reason why is because uh, sometimes people are so protective around um, maintaining trust relationships even when trust is at risk um, that they, they shield other people from knowing that you have actually either intentionally or unintentionally and it's more likely to be unintentionally um, caused tr- tr- trust to fracture
0: yes okay yeah i get that i get that we well, you, you did talk about a trust model earlier david and i know that's key to the whole intentionomics process and the impact that it has let's let's talk about that because uh I get the feeling that this is going to be really important.
1: I, I, this is this is at the heart of where intentionomics becomes really practical. Um, I was I was talking to a CEO uh, of of one of the major finance firms here the other day, and I was working with their board, and they'd been they they'd done the values and visioning and mission statements and all that kind of stuff, and they've got the strategy. And what, what they realized was that the next step to to that kind of strategy work is clarity of intention. And so what we're applying and what I'm applying in organizations is is this intentionomics, what I call the intentionomics trust model. You may want to draw this uh, a, a, as I explain it. If I'm on a page down towards the bottom of a page, you draw a rectangle um, – and that rectangle forms the base. And, and if you draw it sort of pretty much to cover most of uh, that, that page uh, down the bottom, um, it's, it's a platform, if you like. It's a rectangle. That rectangle represents what I call intention. It's our bigger why. Uh, it's it's the, what causes us to do what we do and, and our belief about the impact not only on ourselves but on others. Now, that's the base of the intentionomics trust model. Sitting on top of that base are three pillars – Is that making sense so Mm. far, Gahan? Yep. Yep. So three pillars. So there's a a left-hand side pillar, a right-hand side pillar, and one sitting in the middle, and there's kind of gap in between the the three. So on the left-hand side pillar is what I call promises. These are the three pillars of trust. And the first pillar of trust that sits on intention are our promises. And this is where it becomes inescapable in its truth. That unless we are clear on our intention, the danger is we make unintentional promises. And the unintentional promises are created through the unintentional expectations of those who we come into contact with. And by the way, that can be ourselves as well. Whereas if we have clarity around our intention, we are clear about the promises that we make and the expectations we create. So that's the pillar of trust number one. In the middle, sitting on top of intention, next to the pillar of promise is our action. So that's the second pillar of trust. And again, this is why it's inescapable. If we're not clear on our intention, we don't set intentional promises, and if we're not setting intentional promises, the likelihood is that we we may be taking action on a regular basis, but we may be taking unintentional actions. And this is where potentially living up to 40% of our life in habit is so dangerous and why there's so much work at the moment being done on helping people understand how to be more mindfully in more moments, more often at work. Without having to go and sit in the lotus position and do meditation, um, you can become much more mindful at work to check in that the actions that you're taking are based on clear intention. One simple example of this, Gihan. Every time I'm about to pick up the phone in my home office, there is what I call a practical prod or an intentional um, default that I've got, and it's just a little post-it note that says, what's your intention? Now, that little jolt, that one little message there helps me mindfully before I make the phone call, before I send an email. Uh, It helps me just focus in on, am I about to take intentional action or have I not thought this through enough? And that that only takes, you know, a couple of seconds. So we've got on our base, we've got our rectangle, which is our intention. And that's our bigger why. Sitting on top of that on the left-hand side is our promises, the first pillar of trust. In the middle is our second pillar of trust, which is our actions. The third pillar of trust that sits on the right-hand side of intention uh, is our results. And again, it flows this way. If we're not achieving the results that we want to, the chances are, in other words, we're getting unintentional results. The chances are we may be taking unintentional actions or others may be taking unintentional actions that are impacting on our results. Or they may be taking intentional actions that are impacting on our results. That's another question altogether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um But do you see how it all starts to flow? So our our intention leads to our promises, our promises leads to our actions, and our actions lead to our results. Now, those three pillars of trust where the why is our intention, what you've now got is the what, when, where, and how. Those three pillars of trust provide us with the what, when, where, and how. Now, sitting on top of those three pillars of trust is our final piece in the intentionomics trust model. And if you drew a a rectangle that sat on top of those three pillars of trust, you write the word trust and you write the word character and this is the who. Because when, just as Henry Cloud said, when we talk about a person of integrity, We've got to talk about a person who's clear on their intention, who's clear on their promises, who's clear on their actions, and who's clear on the results, and that they are getting the results that are expected of them. You see, when we, when we have intention that is, is in the good for ourselves and for others, with promises, action, and results that are achieved, what we do is we build on our character. We build on our trust. So now we've got on the bottom, we've got the why. In our three pillars of trust, we've got the what, when, where, and how, and sitting on top is the who. And, and, Although there's a lot spoken about the importance of why in organizations today or in life, focus on the why, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, not just on the what or the where, we've also got to concentrate on all of these other things. That's why my lens, as I look at intention, is not just on why, but what's the impact of the why on ourselves and on others.
0: I'm curious about the whole idea of intentionomics for teams and for organizations, uh, yep. because we've talked very much about individuals, and you've mentioned a little bit around achievement of what leaders can do to help help their uh, help their team members. What what more can leaders do to improve their teams and their businesses?
1: Yeah, great. Uh, and this is where the intentionomics trust model is just such a great tool. Uh, so simple in its in its um, uh, Appearance, but the, the level of engagement and uh, commitment and accountability that, that people get when they apply it. Um, I, I'm just continually, I, I shouldn't say surprised by, but I guess proud of. What leaders can do, and if you think about a team, you know, you've got a couple of options when you really want to get your team. Um, uh, relating better together as individuals and collectively and also achieving what you want them to achieve and to enjoy the journey and be proud of that along the way. You you could take them away and you could go and do ad sailing. Um, You could go and do the ropes courses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Quite frankly, I'm I'm not sure I agree with all of that. It's good fun, but I'm not sure it's really team building because people that go away and do that who aren't naturally into those kinds of things can quite often be left out where it has nothing to do with how they operate at work. Having said that, when you get people as a leader, uh, I would I would get, get your people together and ask them this simple question. When you do what you do in the role that you have, who do you impact? And once they're clear on that, now that you know that you've... So you've in other words, you've listed down all of the stakeholders who are invested in you doing your job well, including yourself. Now, for each of those stakeholders, ask yourself, and and you do this individually first within the team, you ask yourself, what's my intention for this stakeholder or this stakeholder group? What's my intention for myself? What's my intention for this next stakeholder group? Once you're clear on the intention, then what you do, because you've done it for each individual, individuals then share their intentions for each of the stakeholder groups. And that exercise is an extremely, when it's done with the right intention um, and skillfully applied by a leader, what, what you end up with is a, a deeper level of pride, a deeper level of understanding of why people do, or why, a, a bigger why if you like, of why they do what they do in their work role and the impact that it has not only on themselves and not only on the company. But, at a, 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 a more um, intrinsic level of my work buddies uh, of people in the um, team on the other department uh, of of our suppliers, etc, and, and then you just start saying, okay so if now we 're clear on our intentions, what are your pro- what are your individually what are your personal promises that you're going to make to each of those stakeholders? You see how it's really practical to, to apply gehan and, and what it does it gives you a, a, a wonderfully robust model where people have a language in the team that that combines what I call a magnetic attraction for them to be working towards something more than just doing their job. And so that's a real practical application of the intentionomics trust model because it then takes you through if they're your promises and you share that with each uh, each other, then you move on. Then what are the actions that you're taking to live up to those promises? You share those. Now you've got accountability. And so that at the start of each meeting that you have with your team, you start with, okay, so folks, let's look at what are some of the things we've done this week to live up to our intention. And and you have that on the agenda.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I love about that, David, is that, and use the, use the word, use the word practical. It is, uh, I, I like I like things that are simple, but lots of things that are simple aren't always easy. And I think this is both simple and easy because it's based on this this really well-considered intentionomics trust model. It doesn't start with something complicated like what's your purpose in life, what are your values, what's our mission, what's our vision. It's actually things that anyone can answer for themselves and they can answer them pretty quickly. I mean, it requires a little bit of thought, but it's very quick to answer, very quick, very easy to share with people. It's easily understandable and yet it's so powerful.
1: Something you just said then, Gehan, that I just want to share with everybody because it's, it, is, it is something that I'm concerned about and, um, especially from people in the self-help world. Um, m- many s- um, motivational experts uh, have, been, have been saying for many, many years now, what you need to be doing is pursue, pursue your passion, to pursue mm-hmm. your purpose in life, that everyone has a purpose in life. I, I just find that really difficult. Um, m- very few people, very few people that I've asked this question of, um, have got clarity in their mind as to what their purpose is in life. Very few people. Some people wake up and they have a calling, but that's very few. Whether that's you know, a calling from, from religion, whether it's a calling from um, conscience, whether it's a calling from wherever where they realize this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, you know Pete Baines. I know you know Peter, mm. uh, who, who the hands, um, hands across, uh, hands across the hands uh, across the water. I think. thanks, thanks mate. Yeah, hands across the water. Pete Pete goes over to you know uh, after the tsunami, uh, and he sees something that just needs to be fixed. He then has a calling in life. Very few people get that, but here's the thing that we can do. Rather than worry, what's your bigger purpose in life? Your bigger why? Start with your micro-wise. And what I mean by that is when you start to ask yourself what's my intention for each of the people who I impact in my life role? When you get clear about your micro-intentions which actually become your macro-intentions because it's outside of you, it's now for others sometimes you can just forget about trying to worry about what's your purpose in life because looking after those intentions of the people who impact in your, you impact in your life Becomes your purpose. It is your purpose. In fact, if we're not clear on what our bigger purpose is, our purpose is to live a life of intention.
0: Yeah, great. And I think that that's true. And that was true. That's so true for me, David. When I first started on this whole journey of self-discovery, it was like I read a lot about saying, "What's your purpose? Find your purpose. Find your passion." And it it got me stuck. Because I thought, yep. I, until I find that, then I don't know what next step to take. Whereas what you've given is a very, very practical way. And in fact, it's, it's interesting that you said that you've got a post-it note or a little note saying what's your intention. And I was just about to ask you about reputation because, uh, you know, one of my areas of expertise is social media and online presence. And this, it seems to me that this whole intentionomics trust model applies so well to building uh, an online reputation. It's very much part of your online marketing. And yet, I think just from a very, very simple micro Y level, I think everybody who posts anything on social media would dramatically improve what they do in terms of effectiveness and and impact if all they did was they asked before they posted anything, what's my intention behind this?
1: And therein lies the platform principle again. Because you know when when you look at some of just the the, the negatives around social media and the tweets and the bullying cyberbullying and all this kind of stuff uh if if people in the anonymous world quite often um stopped and asked you know what's my intention here and uh, what's going to be the impact of that intention on others and 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 again using the light of day test which is a classic you know would i make this decision or take this action if It was held up in the light of day for all to see. And so something as simple as, Gihan, like you mentioned, the little post-it note that I have before I send this email, before I make this post, um, before I update my LinkedIn, my Facebook page, whatever it is, um, Instagram, whatever it is, what's my intention here? And when we're clear on our intention that what we want to do, the reason why we're putting this up here is not to tell people we're going to lunch. It's, it's to tell people something, to share with people something that allows them to go, wow, thanks for that because I can relate to that and for that reason you've just positively impact on me living a more happy, flourishing and prosperous life. Every, everything that we do in our life, uh, and this might sound like it's, it's um, uh, evangelical and I don't want it to be, but our life consists of moments of truth. Uh, and to, to um, borrow a phrase from Jan Carlson from the 80s, you know, life is about these moments of truth. Um, when we when we leave things to chance, the chances are we can just leave them and we live our life in habit. And when we live our life in habit, we end up saying to ourselves, I can't believe how fast this year has gone. And many of us have said that. Um, so, some of us are saying it right now. Uh, and by stopping every now and then and mindfully intentionally mindfully reminding ourselves to be more in the moment more often is as simple as stopping and saying or asking what's my intention here before i write the before i write the post before i send the email before i pick up the phone before i start this conversation before i drive to this client before i speak to this group what's my intention here intention matters because people get our truth. Over time, our intentions, our promises, our actions, and our results will either promote us or they'll expose us. We have that choice.
0: Brilliant. David Penglis, thank you so much.
1: Guilherme Pereira, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, buddy.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. Because of the time available, I've only published half the interview here in the radio show. So if you'd like to get the full version, I'm very happy to send it to you. Please email me at gihan at gihanperera.com. I'll be happy to send you a full version of the interview. As you might know, my friend Chris Putney and I wrote the book Out of Office to help you get more freedom in your work life. And we recently shared 25 tips for telecommuters and business owners who work from anywhere or who work from a home office. We call it 25 tips in 25 minutes so get ready to write fast or of course you can listen back to this later So we're going to be a bit ambitious today and give you 25 tips in 25 minutes. So the idea is that they're going to be short, sharp and sweet, and they're going to be really practical things that you can do to improve your out-of-office experience. And so we've broken them down into six groups of four, which gives us 24, and then we've got one tip at the very end. So why don't you start, Chris, with the first set of four?
2: Absolutely. We've already wasted one minute, Kihan, and it's all about productivity, the first set of tips, uh, and how you set up your workspace to make it productive. And uh, so my first tip in this case is, if you can, set aside a dedicated workspace, preferably an office, and if you can, have one with a door. Uh, The reason for having a dedicated workspace is that you don't waste time at the beginning and the end of each day setting up and packing away. And having a door is important because it keeps out noise and it keeps out intruders. By intruders, that's other people in the household who might be inclined to interrupt you and, uh, and affect your productivity negatively. Um, and it's not just a physical barrier having a door it's also a kind of psychological barrier in so much as it gives a signal to the other people in your, in your household that you're working and you're not to be interrupted and also at the end of the day uh, again it's a physical and psychological barrier you shut the door behind you and you, you're not tempted to go back into
0: work and overwork uh, the rest of the day is yours and your own time yeah, and my my festive follows on from that, Chris, because you're right, it's all about the setup and making sure you've got a convenient place. And if you're going to switch between workspaces, as many of us digital nomads do, then make it easy to switch. So, for example, for me, one of the things that I do is I work from home sometimes and work at the University of Western Australia Club, where I'm a member at other times, and I have everything in a backpack ready to go when I want to work away from home so that everything is convenient, I don't have to hunt around the house for various things that I need, my wireless modems in the backpack, a spare USB stick, uh, Basically, everything's ready to go so that all I have to do is pack up my computer put in my backpack and move. And whether you're working from a backpack or whether you're working from a internet cafe or wherever you have your various workspaces, think about what you need for each one and then just try and make it very easy to switch between them.
2: Very good. So, my second tip for this section is about ergonomics. So, you're going to be spending a considerable amount of time working. It's important that you're comfortable. And in an ordinary office, you wouldn't uh, put up with having a a crappy desk and chair. You'd you'd insist on fairly good ergonomic equipment to work with. And the same should be for setting up your own home office. So, go out and get yourself a a good quality chair, desk, keyboard, monitor and mouse, etc. And then set them up ergonomically, and there are plenty of guides online for doing this. It's all about how you set the height and adjustment of your chair, where you position your keyboard, and the, uh, the monitor relative to that. Um, and as well as ergonomics for uh, your posture, there's also ergonomics for your eyesight. So things like having the monitor at the correct height and distance is all about uh, making sure that you're focusing and, and not uh, your, your eyesight isn't uh, converging, I think is the word. And as well as setting up uh, your equipment in the right ergonomic fashion, uh, take regular breaks so that you can stand up, stretch, go for a bit of a walk and, uh, and, and, and you don't get physical, cr- physically cramped uh, by having regular breaks and you also get to relax your
0: eyes. Yep. And my next tip follows on from that one as well, Chris, which is about making your workspace your own. So I think, yes, get the ergonomics right, but also do more to make it a place where you like to work. One of the benefits of working out of office is that you get to choose your environment. And there are certain things that happen naturally because of the environment and other things which you can do yourself to make it a a better environment. So You might want to have family photos, inspirational photos, inspirational posters, uh, make sure you've got a nice desk. And uh, I know some people who have aromatherapy candles or those those burners or just just some uh, nice fragrances in their workspace. And if it's your own and you get to choose what it's like, why not make it somewhere that you really like? So just do some positive things uh, as well as just avoiding the negative things.
2: Very good. All right, well, our next group of um, of tips is... We've, we've talked about productivity and part of that is also minimising interruptions. So one of the things that I've done to reduce interruptions is there are all kinds of clients and tools and software that like to pop up alarms and alerts and send off chimes and notifications. And these things are about grabbing your attention and diverting you from what you're doing. So as much as you can... Uh, turn those off, disable them, or shut down the tools that are causing them to happen if they're not tools that uh, are for urgent communication channels. So uh, this can even extend to things like if you use a tablet or mobile phone whilst you're working or if you have them beside you whilst you're working, either put them into silent mode or even put them into airplane mode so that uh, they're not online Uh, and if you don't need your landline, take it off the hook because all of these things are potential interrupters um, and if they're not needed for people to contact you urgently, then uh, disable them in some way.
0: Yeah, good. And I think, again, I'm following on from that, Chris, because my next tip is to actually keep certain things on. And you made the point about urgent contact. And there's certain people that you know want to get through to you urgently. And there's certain people who are important. They might be family or partners or, or really important clients. And give them some way of getting through. So if you turn off other things, give them some other channels. So keep on alerts. And maybe you decide that you're going to have uh, allow people to send you texts, but not ring you. And that might be a way that you can get through urgent communication. So the purpose of this is just to know in your mind you can be, you can rest assured that the people who need to get through it, you can, so that you can focus on the tasks that you need to do without having to worry about checking email, checking your phone all the time. Uh, you can turn those things off and just leave the channels on that you need for urgent and important communication.
2: Very good. So my second tip in this section is is to educate the people that you share your household with, so your family, friends or housemates, um, to interrupt you as little as possible. So. You might have some rules about, you know, I work for you work from nine to five and uh, in those hours you're working and you're not to be interrupted. Or you might have more subtle uh, cues rather than explicit rules. So I said previously if you can have a workspace that's got a door, then when the door is shut, you're at work and you're not to be interrupted. If you don't have a door, I know people recommend, say, wearing headphones. If you've got headphones on, then you're at work and you're not to be interrupted. Uh, that's people within your household, uh, people who might... Uh, might come and interrupt you during the day like family might uh, call up or make a social visit or call you on the phone just let them know that uh, again certain hours of the day you're going to be working and you'd rather not be interrupted so no social calls and no phone calls if they can be avoided
0: Good. And the, my next tip is about scheduling smart. So d- think about care- think carefully about scheduling work for times when you're not going to be interrupted. So I know that there are times, that, there are things that you can do to stop interruptions, but equally, you, because you're working out of office and you've got a bit more flexibility with your work style and your work times, you can be a bit smart about when you do work. So for example, this morning, I was awake at five o'clock in the morning. I just woke up and uh, I did about three hours work knowing that I could get some uninterrupted work done before my workday starts and before my clients and uh, colleagues start ringing or sending me emails. So there are things that you can do with with time zones and just times of the day that you work. I know Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook uh, she's famous for leaving work at 5.30pm every day, which sounds crazy for somebody who's the COO of a big company like that. But what she says is that she leaves, she spends time with her family, and then she logs on and does some more work late at night, after dinner, and after the kids go to bed. So that's, I think, smart scheduling. And I think as an out-of-office worker, you've got a lot of flexibility to do that, so take advantage of it.
2: Very good. Yep. Yeah, so the the next group of tips follows on for that, Diane, yeah, because it's about how you manage your time during your work day. And one of the things that I do is to use something, uh, is to use what I call work sprints, but you might also have heard of the Pomodoro technique. And uh, either way, what they're about is focusing for a relatively short period of time, say 30 to 45 minutes, then taking a short break of around about five minutes, and then repeating. Um, I think in the Pomodoro technique, you do 25-minute Work sprints and then a five-minute break. And then after you've done four of those, that's that's two hours and you take a longer break. But it's all about having this intense focus period when you work and then you follow that up with a short break. As I mentioned earlier in the in the earlier set of tips, this gives you a chance, this short break, to do some stretching and to relax your eyes and to also give your mind a bit of a rest as well because if you've been focusing for 25 minutes, it can be wearying and fatiguing. So that break gives you some a, a chance to recover.
0: Yep. And I like that. And I do that as well. And the other thing I do, uh, and I recommend for everyone is to have some sort of system for setting your priorities for the day, because you're always going to have stuff on your to-do list. And you're never going to get to the end of it. So you've got to choose which things are going to be the most important for you. And whatever system works for you, use that one. One that I've found recently, which I found is starting to work for me is uh, it's called the 135 system. So you decide at the start of your day, or maybe the night before, the one really important task that you want to get done tomorrow or today which would be the most important for the day you might have three medium tasks and five smaller tasks and the smaller ones are nice uh, but if you don't get around to them that's okay the the middle ones you'd like to really get done but the one really important one is the one that you absolutely want to get done during the day and so you end up with four big tasks on your to-do list and five minor tasks and there's one of the big tasks which is a really big one and then focus on them and just prioritize them and it doesn't necessarily mean you can do the, the big one first but at least it's front of mind for you and you know that you want to get it done before the day ends. Okay I
2: mentioned the Pomodoro technique as the first tip in this section Gihan and another component of that is about tracking and logging the work that you do um, and while I don't use the po- the pomodoro technique explicitly i do track my time and i find it really useful for two reasons firstly it builds up this record of what i've actually done so i can see whether i'm spending too much time on one task versus another um, and it also has gives me the data that i can use for estimating any future tasks that i need to perform so i'm often asked to provide an estimate of the time involved in doing a particular bit of work and then i can look at uh, my my log and see uh, whether I've done similar things in the past and how long it took me and then I can come up with a fairly accurate estimate of how long any future task might take me.
0: Yeah, and I really liked what you said there, Chris, because you're tracking your time for those reasons and not because you just need to fill in a time sheet and do so many hours a week, because that's my next tip. The next tip is to make sure that you focus on getting things done. So be focused on your outcomes, not just about the amount of time that you're spending at work. And especially important for out-of-office workers, because uh, our managers and our colleagues are really judging us by our results, so they don't really care really how many hours you spend on something as long as you get the results so be laser focused on doing what needs to be done and making sure that you meet deadlines and you do to the highest standard possible because people are relying on you to to deliver certain outcomes by certain dates and times and uh, so make sure that you do make sure that you make clear promises about what you're going to do and keep them and just do whatever needs to be done to make sure it's done regardless of the number of hours it's going to take. Okay, so I think we're about halfway through, Chris, and I think yeah. we're tracking pretty well. So are on now... track.
2: I've been keeping a log.
0: <laughs> now we get into the big one, which is all about email. And we had a number of extra tips in here, which we had to cull to bring the list down. But let's start with, well, let's start with I think, one of the most important ones, and that is don't use your inbox as your to-do list. Uh, most people do this, and I think it's a big trap. And I think if you can avoid this trap, it will make a significant difference in the way that you handle email. Because all your incoming email is somebody else's priority, not yours. So if you use your inbox as your to-do list, what it means is that you're being driven by what other people expect of you. And you never get your own work done. So whatever comes into your inbox, read it file it, and then get back to your own stuff. Um, I've even come across a tool recently called Boomerang. And it's on the surface, it seems like a really useful tool because it just returns your email to you at a later date. So you can say, please send this back to me in three days' time. But I find it really annoying because it, it then means that email arrives, arrives in my inbox twice. Okay. I'd much rather just file it away the first time uh, if I need to action it later and have it on a separate to-do list. So you really should just... Treat your inbox as some something where material arrives, and then you empty it out as soon as possible, and then get on with your own work.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Gihan, and my tip is it follows on from that almost exactly because the idea is, as you say, you don't with boomerang you have to process things twice. The idea with the inbox is that you process it, you file stuff, and then later you action it. So separate that processing from the response, the actioning of your email. Uh, And I mentioned earlier about turning off notifications. Turn off your email notifications, unless it's an urgent communications channel, and it really shouldn't be, because if you turn off those notifications, then you're not tempted, you're not drawn by those notifications into your inbox and uh, attempted to respond to email at the same time. You should be going to your inbox uh, according to your own priorities, scanning it and then filing the messages that are are within it uh, and not responding to them uh, straight away, uh, responding to them again at a different time that fits in with your priorities and your schedules. And you can also reduce the workload involved in scanning and processing your inbox by setting up some automatic filters to do much of that Uh, for you so things like newsletters and those sorts of things they can be automatically picked up by your um, email clients filters and filed away in the appropriate folders without you having to set eyes on them until you're actually looking at that that newsletters folder.
0: Yes. Speaking of which, and that leads on to my next point, (laughs) is that people complain about the amount of email they get. And sometimes you're you're your own worst enemy. So you mentioned things like newsletters. Uh, Great. Some newsletters are fantastic, but some of them are irrelevant. So just look through your inbox and look through your incoming mail and decide which things you just don't need to get. So unsubscribe from newsletters that aren't providing value. Turn off social media notifications. All the Mm -hmm. social media platforms will let you do that, but they're generally turned on by default and you need to turn them off. And You don't need them because they're already in in, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn if you ever decide to go back and check them. So you don't need to get them in email. Um, If people are sending you email without permission or putting you on these um, multiple emails like multiple CCs or BCCs, and they're irrelevant, Ask to be removed from them. Um, If you're getting notifications, say, from LinkedIn, and they're coming every time something happens, you can change them to weekly or even never. So just look through and be ruthless about uh, the incoming email that you yourself can remove very easily. Very good.
2: And so I mentioned in my previous tip that you should separate the scanning and processing of your inbox from responding uh, to to the messages that are that you're scanning, and uh, when you process them, what I do is I place them into what are subfolders of my inbox, uh, and. You can set up the folders in a way that works for you, but for me, I've got these subfolders that are related to the timeliness with which I want to respond to the messages that are filed within them. So I've got an, an urgent one that means it must be dealt with uh, today. Then I've got uh, another group of folders that relate to messages that I need to respond to within the next few days. And then I've got one for newsletters that uh, is, is dealt with automatically. And uh, then one that uh, is more of an FYI, stuff that um, I'm sort of monitoring and I don't need to necessarily action. So, that's email, uh, and that's a tool that we use a lot as out-of-office workers and information workers. Something else that we're increasingly using, as particularly out-of-office workers, is online meetings. So, the next group of tips is all about that. Uh, my first is to have a pre-meeting checklist. So, on my checklist, I've got things like I notify other people in my household that I'm going to be uh, in a meeting. and uh, like them to keep quiet if possible, and not not use the uh, the telephone line extension. I've had a, an order for fish and chips go through in the middle of one of my meetings. Uh, also, turn off uh, devices that you don't need for the meeting. So if I, I'm usually using my landline these days, so I'll I'll switch off my mobile. Do a technology check. So uh, for VoIP uh, VoIP calls, I often check that Skype is working properly by using the, uh, the, the callback service, making sure my headphone uh, and uh, headset is working. If you're going to be recording the meeting, make sure the recording system is working. And finally, have a backup plan. So... Uh, Things like something simple, like I write down any bridge numbers that I'm using for, uh, for tele- teleconferencing services in case I get dropped out. I don't have to go and look up the message that the, the bridge number's in. I actually have it written down on a piece of paper so I can get back in straight away.
0: Yeah, and even before you do the pre-meeting checklist, Chris, I think you need to know what you want to get from the meeting. If it's not just about information um, and just getting information, then ask yourself, I think you should ask yourself these three questions. What do you want people to know, feel or do as a result of you being in the meeting. So it doesn't matter even if you're not the person who called the meeting and you're not chairing the meeting. As a participant, what are your outcomes and not just your outcomes in terms of what you get from it, but what you want other people in the meeting to know, feel or do. And I think if you just ask those three questions before you plan your participation in the meeting, it will make a big difference to what you get out of the meeting and what other people will get from you being part of it.
2: Yeah, very good. Uh, My second tip for this section, Gihan, is to arrive, so-called arrive at the meeting early. So dial in a few minutes before the starting time. You never know, you might even end up starting a meeting early. It hasn't happened to me yet, but uh, it might happen one day. But at least it creates that culture, You're sort of leading a culture of uh, arriving at meetings on time. Most of my colleagues haven't developed that yet, but uh, it could happen one day. Arriving early does lead to the temptation to start having a bit of a social chat and you can defeat the purpose of a turning up on time or early. So um, what you can do is just say I'm going to mute uh, my, uh, my phone for a, few, for a few minutes until the meeting time starts whilst I get prepared or whatever and then uh, unmute once the meeting actually gets underway.
0: Yeah, great. And I think the other thing that you mentioned is that like you mentioned that sometimes it can cause delays by people not arriving in time. The other big thing that causes delays is, of course, technology problems. And uh, I know a lot of people are doing online meetings now and still there's so many meetings that get plagued by technology problems and they cause delays during the meeting as well. So um, if you're, especially if you're playing an important role in the meeting, like a, whether you're, if you're a speaker or a chair, chair in the meeting or your host or your moderator or you're presenting something, get really comfortable with the technology. There's nothing worse than sitting in a meeting and watching somebody who's running it or supposedly running it, struggling with the technology. So get good with the technology. And uh, if you do, you'll set yourself apart from most people who participate in online meetings and you'll actually be, like, you'd be very impressive to other people as well as making, making sure that the meeting runs smoothly. So those are the four areas around online meetings. Uh, Our final area is around flexibility, which is something that uh, we mentioned, we touched on earlier, which is out-of-office workers have a lot of flexibility. So we've got some ideas here on how to make the most of that flexibility and make sure that it also doesn't uh, trap you and get in the way of you getting work done. So my first tip is about dedicated time slots. Uh, Just consider setting aside dedicated time slots each week for certain things that you want to do. So we talked earlier about prioritizing and setting up um, your tasks for the day. But what I'm talking about here is actually deciding that certain times or certain days of the week are for certain things. So for example, Fridays for me are non-client days. So they're the days that I work on marketing and infrastructure, um, writing, developing new products. Uh, I know a client of mine, he sets his dedicated time as before 8 a.m. in the morning. So he wants to make that as productive as possible. Um, Other people set aside afternoons uh, or Tuesday afternoon. Another client sets aside Thursday as his marketing day. So just consider whether you can set aside dedicated times. And if other things flow into that, Sometimes you have to make an exception, but at least the rule is that you've got this time set aside.
2: Very good. And uh, so far we've been talking about not being too flexible, and I'm going to continue that trend, Gihan, and suggest that uh, having a a daily routine uh, can help... uh, help you work when you're really the boss of your own hours. So you can try fairly regular hours and, and that's what I do. I try to start around about the same time each day and finish at the same time each day, have a lunch break of a certain duration in the middle of the day. Uh, and. I've even heard people suggest that for telecommuters and out-of-office workers, they start the day by uh, dressing professionally, getting dressed for work. Um, And while I don't do that, the motivation, the the reason for suggesting that is that it helps create and reinforce a professional mindset by having a a preparation routine that gets you into the mood for work and uh, can help you focus once your day gets started.
0: Great, great. My next tip around this is about setting weekly goals. So we talked earlier about setting goals. Goals for the day and prioritizing things you want to do during the day, and that's great. But I reckon the other thing you should do, which I got from reading Stephen Covey's book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is to set your goals weekly rather than daily. Because sometimes things just get in the way and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to miss some daily goals. But if you have your eye on what you want to achieve during the week, then when those little unexpected things come along, you can still sail through them pretty smoothly as long as you know that I want to achieve this by the end of the week. So set your weekly goals and then break them down into daily actions if you want to.
2: Yeah. And because out-of-office work offers such great flexibility, don't be afraid to tinker with and experiment with your routines and and the way that you've set up your work week and your work day, So, as well as not only your time, but also the places that you work as well. You've got those freedoms, so why not uh, make the most of them? So whilst you're experimenting and fine-tuning, you can also be checking the goals that uh, you originally when embarked upon out-of-office work for. Make sure that uh, they're fulfilling your aims and goals and tweak and adjust uh, your routines and when you're working and where you're working to, uh, to keep your out-of-office work style on track.
0: Yeah, great, Chris. And I think we've done 24 of the 25 tips now. And the last one that you just gave about just experimenting with things actually leads into number 25, which uh, I'm calling break all the rules. So you should certainly, I hope you use our ideas and any any others that you find as a starting point. But make sure there's only a starting point. One of the benefits that we've got as out-of-office workers is that you get to make it work your way. So as you said, Chris, try different things. Uh, you can work at different times, see what suits you and your own physical energy. You can you can try working on laptops versus a desktop versus a tablet. You might experiment with whether you, it's better to work from a home where it's quiet or whether you work at a cafe where there's that buzzy ambient noise. Uh, you might do those work sprints in 25 minutes or 45 minutes. I'm finding at the moment 40 minutes seems to be right, about right for me. You can decide how how many emails you're going to have in your inbox. I reckon you should have zero, but (laughs) uh, you may want to vary that rule. Uh, When you do your online meetings, maybe you choose some with video, some with audio, some with just instant messaging for uh, basic communication. So just try these things and figure out what works best for you. Obviously, you've got to make sure that you don't jeopardize the the work that you've got to do and the deadlines you've got to meet. but, But don't be restricted either by what you've always done, because there might be a better way of doing things.
2: Very good, Gihan. I couldn't agree more and uh, I'm, I'm glad we have shared these tips and some of them uh, I'm going to have to revisit and make sure that I'm uh, impl- implementing them myself. How about you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some, just some really good reinforcements for me and uh, that last one in particular, just to try a few different things is, worth, is always worth doing. Very good. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it
2: possible and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life.
0: So that's it for Expert Goal Radio this month. I told you you'd get a lot of value and I hope you did. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something that you can use in your organization. Next month I'll be back with thought leadership expert Matt Church. We'll look at how to develop and nurture thought leaders in your organization. Have a great month.
2: You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.